right, today I want to challenge each of us with a charge that Paul gives us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, where he says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. This is the imperative that Paul gives to save individuals at the church of Colossae. If you read through the book of Colossians, you'll find that Paul addresses many of the same things that believers of today need to hear. And this message that we're going to cover today, to mortify your members, is one of those such things. You see, we live in a day and age of self-gratification, where there is more, more consideration of what man wants than what God wants. And as believers, we should be concerned about what God does and what He does not want in our lives. So that's a question that you should all be contemplating. What does God want me to do and what does God not want me to do? Paul is saying in the passage today that there are things that we need to deal with. And so let's go ahead and consider, first of all, what Paul says in the immediate context. Let me go ahead and read, starting back in verse 1 of Colossians chapter 3, and read through verse 7. Paul says here, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. So here we see Paul give the instruction to those that are at Colossae. Let's go ahead and pray. Ask the Lord blessing upon our time here today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity for us to be able to consider the truths of your word, to take a look in a book that we haven't been in for a while, to consider the reality that you want us to mortify our members that are upon the earth. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we take a look at this passage, that you give us understanding, that you'd give us a burden to be able to deal with things that you want us to deal with in our lives. Father, we thank you for the, the salvation you provide us in your Son, the Lord, Lord Yeshua. Father, I pray that as we contemplate what he did for us, that we counted a small thing to get our, right, our life moving in the right direction. Heavenly Father, I pray you bless our efforts, give us clarity in the Word, let your Spirit have full course, and I pray all this in Yeshua's name. Amen. As we consider the immediate context, the verses that I just read here, and 1 through 7, I just want to briefly touch on this to kind of lay the groundwork for verse 5. Because Paul says in verses 1 and 2, he says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. He says here in these first two verses that the Colossians are to seek those things above and to set their affection on those things. That's supposed to be what we're supposed to be focusing on. In verse 3, when it continues, it says, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Paul here says it is possible for the believers to focus on those things for two reasons. First of all, it's found in verse 3, because we are dead. And number two, it says, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So those are the two reasons why we have the ability to focus or set our affections on things above. Being dead is a reference to how the believer, through their identification with Christ and his death, has also died to sins. 
and are free, they're liberated from the bondage of sin. The reference to how a believer's life is hid with Christ in God means that our life is concealed by Christ. It's covered by Christ. This covering is an indication of the, of the identification that the believer has with the Messiah. In verse 4 it says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Paul states that the contrast exists between that which is hid today and that which will be revealed in the future. There should not be a difference. The believer today is to live knowing that there will come a time that they will be revealed with Christ in His glory. And because Christ is our life, we are to, as Paul says in verse 5, mortify our members. As it says here in verse 5, he says, Mortify therefore your members. He then goes on to list those things that are to be mortified. We can see in verse 5 that we have a list of five items. It says fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So we list these five things real briefly without going into any significant detail here. But fornication is, is dealing with sexual sin outside of marriage. And that can take a lot of different types of forms. He lists uncleanness. Now, I used to just think this, this word referred to immorality. But if one comes from the context of the Old Testament, one quickly becomes aware that this is theologically loaded as far as what God expects to us and what we're supposed to touch and not touch and what we're supposed to do after we become unclean for whatever reason it might be. I believe Paul is referring to not, to not purposely becoming defiled or not properly addressing uncleanness here. He lists thirdly, he says, inordinate affection. This word here is a little bit of old English, but it essentially gets at this idea of excessive passion or lust. Excessive passion or lust. The difference between this and fornication is that fornication is dealing with the act, the action. And inordinate affection is dealing with the emotions or lusts behind it. He also lists here the fourth item, evil concupiscence. This phrase here means bad or evil desire or bad or evil longings. So again, another in inward type of emotion. So it seems to be closer to the emotion of, I want, I want, I want. It's the desire of, or longing to personally obtain something. This has is a slightly different flavor. And the next one is covetousness, which is idolatry. And here this is greedy desire. And covetousness can take two different types of form generally. The desire to have something you do not have or the possession of something you don't want to give up. So that takes a couple different forms. And so Paul lists these five items here. Then in verse 6 he says, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. In verse 6 Paul explains that there are sins that causes God to get angry. These things that he lists in verse 5, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, these are things where the wrath of God falls on mankind. He then goes on to say in verse 7, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. So in other words, Paul is saying these are things that used to encompass you. Before you came to know Yeshua as your Savior, this was your life. You walked in these things. You lived in these things. 
The life of the believer, Paul is saying here, is not supposed to be filled with these things anymore. That's what he's talking about here. He says, in which times ye also walked, which ye lived in them. And he connects this back to the children of disobedience. He says, he's saying, trying to say here, you don't want to identify with this. And so if we, were, if we were to read further on in the text here, Paul deals with additional sins as well. What I want to do today is to deal with what Paul's instruction is here in verse 5 to mortify their members, particularly dealing with these sins. What does Paul mean when he says to mortify their members? And the question that follows upon that, is that even possible? And so looking at verse 5, Paul says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. The word you see there is therefore. It's the second word, but in, in, the, in the Greek, the understanding is, is that it helps connect thoughts from a previous thought. So therefore, you should ask a question, therefore what? Well, therefore, here's a conjunction that serves the purpose of connecting that which was previously said to what is about to follow. It carries the meaning of therefore, consequently, accordingly, or then. In other words, Paul is not setting aside what he just said, I'm talking about setting your affection upon that which is above, because you're dead in Christ. He says, because of those facts, because of those realities you're supposed to be putting your focus on, you are to mortify, therefore, your members. So Paul is building off of what he just said. And so we see this word mortify. Mortify, it's not typically a word we use today a whole lot. But it comes from, from a Greek word, which means to put to death. Put to death. So Paul is literally saying here, therefore, put to death your members. Put to death, mortify. Now this word mortify appears three times in the New Testament. The two other times it appears in this form is in a completely different context. But it is important to realize, if you take a look at verse 3 here in our context, Paul had just got done saying, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now the word dead is a different word. So he is trying to hit this from a slightly different angle. But this word for mortify in the verbal form here, appears in the adjectival form 132 times. And it can refer to both the physical and the spiritual aspect of death. It's important to see the usage of this word, to see the connection and the force of what Paul is trying to say here in verse 5 when he says, Mortify therefore your members. So let's consider a few places here. First, let's take a look at Matthew 28. Because you compare what Scripture says and how it uses this word, you start getting the idea of what God expects us to do. So, first of all, Matthew 28, this helps connect it to the context that Paul was laying out in, in Colossians 3. So, first of all, Matthew 28 and verse 7. It says here, And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there shall ye see him, lo, I have told you. So here's pretty easy to get connection, it's the word dead. So here we can see how this word is used to describe the Messiah's death. Many of the usages in the Gospels either point to this or to others that have physically died. I think we get this aspect of this word, die, death. But it's important to see that Paul uses, uses this word in verse 5, mortify, 
is connected to Christ's death. So that's part of what, what he had said earlier in the chapter in verse 3. But also consider how this word is also used by Paul in Romans chapter 6. So go to, go to here after the book of Acts. We have Romans. Romans chapter 6. Because Paul in chapter 6 makes these connections to what Christ did for the believer and what then should follow for the believer because he identifies with the Messiah. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, it says here, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So you see here, in the middle of this verse, when it says that like as Christ was raised up from the dead, that's the adjectival form of mortify. So here this verse connects Christ's sacrificial death to the spiritual life provided to the believer. We may see this at first as in conflict with each other, and much of the world does see this. They don't understand how can a person die to become resurrected. How do, why do they need to die to see new life? But that's the exact argument that Paul is making here. And then look again a few verses down in verse 11. It says here, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see here in this verse the word dead. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead or mortified indeed unto sin. So here Paul links what he has been saying throughout the chapter, that Christ was dead, therefore providing a believer the ability to live for him. And then he says in verse 11 that a believer should therefore also be dead indeed to sin. In other words, Christ sets the pattern that the believer should follow. So we look to our Messiah and understanding what has been accomplished for our lives. This connection that a believer has to death of Christ is also finally emphasized in Colossians. If you go back to Colossians and take a look at chapter 2. Now today we're just doing a message out of chapter 3, but there's a lot in the book of Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 2, in verse 12, Paul makes the statement, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So Paul just said in the previous chapter, as we, as we look at this from the perspective of chapter 3, he just said in chapter 2, that the Colossian believers were at one time spiritually dead in their sins. They were spiritually dead in their sins. But then, when they believed in the person and the work of the Messiah, they then were quickened or enlivened, made alive through and with Him. At their belief upon Him and their identification with Him provided them forgiveness of all their trespasses. So again, in Colossians 2, verse 12, it says, Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him, through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. 
So this identification with Christ's death has laid the foundation for Paul to use the word again in Colossians 3 and verse 5, translated as mortify. He says the basis has already been provided for you as believers. You can now mortify, therefore, your members. You can mortify them. Now, mortify, the word itself, is a verb, and it's an imperative. In other words, it's a command. It's an instruction. It's an expectation for something to be done. In other words, this is not a suggestion or just a good idea that a believer should consider. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying, well, if you have a little extra time, if you feel like you have nothing else to do, then maybe you should consider mortifying your members. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this is what you're expected to do. This is a command that every believer needs to follow. It's important to realize that the epistle to the Colossians was written to faithful brethren. We don't have this idea here of where, well, the Colossians, they were just a messed up group of people, and they had to mortify themselves. And you step back and consider, well, why did Paul say this to the Corinthians? He could have. But why did he say to the Colossians, especially when you consider what is said about them in the very first chapter? Turn back to chapter 1 and look at verse 2. This is who Paul is speaking to. He says... In Colossians 1-2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not writing to rebellious believers. He's writing to individuals, as he says here, to the saints and faithful brethren. And so to these same individuals, he gets to chapter 3 and he says, mortify therefore your members. In other words, what Paul is instructing here is something that every believer needs to focus on. Every believer needs to see the need to do this. No believer has arrived and gotten to the point of going, well, I'm all mortified. Not completely. So even these faithful brethren at Colossae needed the reminder and the imperative to mortify their members. You see, this is, a, this is applicable to us. Now, it is at this point that I want to ask the question that some might be asking. Why is it that in verse 3, if you go back to verse 3, Paul says, ye are dead. Take a look at verse 3 again. Paul says, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. If Paul says, for ye are dead, why does he say in verse 5 that we need to mortify ourselves then? If you're already dead, why do you need to kill yourself? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Even though the Greek words are different between ye are dead in verse 3 and mortify in verse 5, there is not really that much difference, if any, between the two. They have the same idea. And we can see in the adjectival form of it that it's used the physical death of the Messiah and others in the New Testament, as well as the spiritual aspect that Paul uses that we saw in Romans chapter 6 and we also saw in Colossians chapter 2. So the question is, why would a believer need to put these things to death if they're already dead? Is Paul confused here? The answer is that in verse 3, it is referring to how they are dead, or how a believer is dead. It's referring to the believer's position in Christ, is what verse 3 is getting at. Once an individual believes upon Yeshua, they have repented of their sins and they turn in faith to the person and the finished work of the Messiah. What he's accomplished for a person to become right and reconciled with God. They are now considered dead in Christ or through Christ. 
And as Paul stated in verse 1, take a look back at Colossians 3 and verse 1, it says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of the Father. So, just like the Messiah died and was buried and risen again, Paul makes the argument in Romans chapter 6, as well as in Colossians chapter 3, that we're also risen with Him. When a person repents of their sins and turns into faith to who he is and what he has accomplished, they become dead to their sins, and they rise with Him unto everlasting life, or can live now the life quickened by the Spirit. So positionally, where a person stands, positionally, the believer has all of his sins forgiven, and he is viewed as being righteous in Christ. So if a person believes on God, believes in the Messiah, at that point they are right with God. If they were to die, if something were to happen, they would go to heaven. They would see their sins righteous with God. Five minutes later, if they were to die, no matter what they did, they would be right with God. Five years later, if they died, they'd be right with God, and they would go to heaven. That's what it means to be positionally correct, positionally righteous before God. So positionally, a believer is dead in Christ. And so, that is a reality. However, the believer is still a sinner and needs to grow in Christ. All your sinfulness has not gone away. The consequences of sin has been covered by the blood of the Messiah but we're still operating in the flesh. Said another way, there is a sanctification process that then, then follows for the believer where sin in their life is dealt with. The believer needs to recognize that they are not just saved from the penalty of sin, but they are also saved from the power of sin. You see, the believer has the ability to not sin. Just because you've now had your sins forgiven doesn't mean you have the right to operate in sin in your life going forward. But the reality is we still live in this fleshly body. The body still wants to do things that are opposed to God. Now something that is important not to get confused here is that although it is true that the believer is still dealing with sin after salvation, it does not mean that sin is not dealt with at the moment one believes upon the Messiah. I say this because there are some that want to separate salvation from dealing with sin. Believing on the Lord means that one starts with recognizing their sinful condition. They acknowledge that, they, that their sin is rightfully causing them to go to hell. And until a person comes into, into reality of that situation, they can't really truly receive the gospel message. You can't receive what God has given you as a gift if you don't realize why you need to receive it. You see, God hates sin. God hates my sin, He hates your sin, He hates everyone's sin. And it's sin separates individuals from God. One that repents of their sin is identifying their sin and desiring to turn from it. And, and as they turn from this sin, they're able to turn in faith to the Messiah. So it's clear from Scripture that sin dealt with is part of believing. However, the believer will, will still sin after salvation, and that needs to be dealt with. That's what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 3. We see the same type of thing in 1 John chapter 1. Turn to 1 John, towards the end of the Bible here, 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Taking a look at verse 8. Notice what John says here about 
the aspect of sin being in a believer's life, even though they're positionally righteous before God because they've trusted upon Him. He says in 1 John 1, 8, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If you come across an individual that says that they are a believer in the Messiah, and you ask them, do you have, what was your life look like and, and, and things? And they talk about how they, how they, have, they have a transition and that, that their life, the new life. That, that's, that's, that is fruit that should be there. But if an individual says, well, I don't commit any sin anymore. I'm not a sinner in any way, shape, or form. Well, at that point there, this passage in John says they're deceived. If you're here today and you, and you say that you're a believer, you profess salvation, and you don't have to think you have anything to deal with in your life, well, you are deceived. You have not arrived. I have not arrived. No one has ever arrived. Does that, mean, does that mean, though, that your life should never be worked on, that you should never submit yourself to God, that you should not be trying to work with the Spirit, work with the Scriptures to move forward with what God wants to happen in your life? Well, of course you should be doing that. You should never be giving up. You also never should be deceived to think you have nothing to work on. And so here we see that the reality for individuals who need to deal with sin in their life, even after salvation, still exists. And one of the arguments levered from an unbeliever to a believer is that salvation is a license to sin, and that just does not seem right. It doesn't seem right that you can just repent of your sins and tell God you're sorry, and then just believe upon Him, and then all your sins are forgiven. And no matter what happens, God's, God's just good with it. And you know what? They're right. Salvation is not a license to sin. It's exactly right. And a true believer will recognize this and respond to the teaching that Paul is giving here in Colossians and elsewhere. That because of the salvation that has been freely given to you, at no cost to yourself, only cost to the Messiah, cost to God, that does not give you a right to just walk around and do whatever you want to. Paul says in Colossians 3.5, Mortify your members upon the earth. So what we have here in verse 5 is a reminder by Paul that the believer needs to be aware that they need to deal with sin in their life. So what is it that the believers are to mortify or to put to death? So we look back at this verse here again in verse chapter, five, chapter 3 and verse 5. It says, Mortify therefore your members. So he says here, Your members which are upon the earth. Now, the word members is the Greek word melas, and it means a part or a limb of the body. A part or a limb of the body. Now, it is clear that whatever these members or these limbs are, they are related to the Colossians, because it says, your members. So, he's writing to the, Coloss the Colossians here. So, it has to do with the Colossians. Now, this word members also refers to body parts, is used a couple ways in the New Testament. One of those ways, as is seen in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, you don't need to turn it there, is a reference to the members of the body of Christ. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 deal with this aspect of the members of the body of Christ. In other words, body parts or members can refer to individual church members. And so there's a lot of teaching surrounding that piece. I'm not going to try to prove that element, but I believe that the body of Christ refers to individual church members. And a church body is, is the body of Christ. But that's not what Paul is referring to here. 
He is not saying to the Colossians that they should mortify, put to death certain members of the Colossian church to deal with sin. He's not advocating that. That would be quite the discipline procedure. But what is obviously, but, 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 this, is, but this is obviously never called, because this is obviously never called for in Scripture. The third step of church discipline has to do with excommunicating the unrepentant sinner out of the protection of the assembly where Satan then can deal with that individual. That's church discipline, not mortifying them. Here in verse 5, this is not referring to church discipline, but instead the individual body parts of their own body. Now, Scripture is clear that sin reigns in the individual members of our bodies. And as a reminder, some of those places, if someone's going to come to mind, take a look back at the book of Matthew again, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. Considering where some other times this word is used in dealing with body parts. Matthew chapter 5, in verse 29. Here Yeshua is making a very, a very, uh, very stark type of a, of a comment to try to get their attention. He's not actually advocating for this, but he's trying to say this is, this is what you need to consider and how serious this is. Matthew chapter 5, in verse 29. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one part, that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So here we see twice in these two verses, we see the word members appear, a portion of the body that is causing sin to occur. So the Messiah is saying, deal with that issue, whatever it might be, so that the whole body isn't taken down. Take a look at James chapter 3. So I'm just trying to demonstrate here that this word members can refer to body parts that are connected to sin. Take a look at the, at the, at the book of James towards the end. That's where Hebrews, before 1 Peter, you find James. James chapter 3. Pick it up in verse 5, so James 3, 5. It says here, Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. So once again, we see another time that individual body parts can cause problems and affect the entire body. And both Yeshua and also James connects this idea of hell here. That misuse of the body can lead to hell. Now, he's not talking about believers here, but for an unbeliever, it's one of the paths that leads there. Now, the idea that sin can and does thrive in different parts of the body is emphasized by Paul in Romans. So turn back to Romans again here. Take a look at Romans chapter 6. We are here looking at a couple verses already. Let's look at another verse in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, taking a look at verse 12. 
asking the question, does the Bible speak about sin in our members? Romans 6.12, it says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You see, there's a right way and a wrong way to use your body. There's a right way and a wrong way to use different parts of your body. Your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your tongue, your hands, your feet, any aspect of your body. There's a right way and a wrong way of using things. And so Paul talks about this, and once again, he connects this in the context of dealing with how we are dead, and therefore, because we're dead in the Messiah, we can now live for Him. And because we're dead, we should mortify or put to death aspects of sinful use of our members and instead use our members for righteous things. And so we see here the same kind of contrast. And so it's a similar instruction to what we see in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. A believer is not to let sin have control in the body. Now that's easier said than done. And that's why you get to the next chapter in Romans chapter 7, and you see Paul saying things like this. So look over the next chapter, Romans chapter 7. And he says in verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were, de- which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. So he's talking about this contrast. Paul's, you see how Paul refers to the pre-conversion state of the believer. Before they were saved, sin had complete control through all their members. And because of this, is resulting in the spiritual death. And so Paul here then, as he moves on, talks about what, what, is it, what is it afterwards? Take a look down at verse 23. This battle doesn't necessarily end. It gets easier, but it doesn't necessarily end. Romans 7 and verse 23. Paul says, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And and earlier in the chapter, he talks about I do what I don't want to do, and what I I do, I I try not to do. And so it's like this war that goes on back and forth. And so you notice in Romans 7.23, twice he uses the word members. There's a battle going on. Paul is clear through just a little bit further in the chapter, that that the war goes on and the members of the body does not cease after salvation. It's very clear here. It's a struggle that continues. However, it's a struggle that can be successfully fought against and also won. And that's the whole reason for the point that Paul is trying to make, is that Paul is referring to members is not just It's not just anything that can't be dealt with. He says, you can do this. You can mortify this. But as we consider what he's trying to say here in Colossians 3 and verse 5, when he says, mortify your members which are upon the earth, there's something we need to deal with. But it's more than just the physical. It's more than just the eyes. It's more than just the ears. It's more than the tongue. It's more than the hands. It's more than the feet. It's not just a matter of just sitting in the chair and doing nothing, but isolating yourselves, locking yourselves in a room. Paul also says, he says, he calls his members as more than just the physical. Although it's very true that the material part of the body is, is a participant, 
There's also the spiritual aspect of the body, the mind, the emotions, the passions, and the feelings. We also saw Paul connected some of this at one point back in the verse in Romans chapter 6. So let's go back here to Romans chapter 6 and read the one verse here again, back in verse 12. Notice how it's not just the physical aspect of things. It's also the spiritual. Romans chapter 6 and verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey in the lusts thereof. Notice the word uses the word lust there. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield your, yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So he deals with the aspect of lust as well. So there's an internal side of this. There's a spiritual aspect of this. A similar idea appears in James chapter 4. So go back to James again. James chapter 4. In James chapter 4 and verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? This is not just talking about church people that are going back and forth. It's talking about the source of that. The members here is referring to your own individual bodies, James is saying here. The lusts that war in your members. And so you can see that this imperative, back in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, to mortify your members is not just the physical body, but the spiritual, the immaterial aspect as well. And this is confirmed by looking at our context in, in, chapter, in chapter 3 of Colossians. Remember verse 5, he says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, some of the things listed here is physical, but some of the things here is also listed is the immaterial, the spiritual. And so notice Paul clarifies these, where these members are to be. He says in verse 5, which are upon the earth. Now, although this helps clarify that Paul is not referring to heavenly members, I believe it is really is done by Paul to keep all of this in context. You see, the word earth, the word gay, is, 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 the, is the Greek word, is the same word found in verse 2. So Colossians 3, 2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Again, verse 2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And he goes on in, chapter, in verse 5, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. The things that are getting away of you focusing on the things of heaven. Focusing on things above. See, these, these things on earth are connected to everything that is not focused on, on the above. In other words, Paul is referring to those passions that drive earthly thinking. All of those things that Paul was reminding the Colossians about in chapter 2. In other words, Paul is saying here in verse 5, that the believer needs to mortify their members which are upon the earth because these very members can be and are subject to these things that can beguile and spoil the believer. That's one of the things that Paul talks about in chapter 2. And so he says you need to be careful because your members are what can get you going the wrong direction, focusing on earthly things, and then get in the way. Part of the believer's ability to seek those things above, 
part of the, the believer's ability to set their affection on things above is conditioned on mortifying their members. Do you struggle to be able to focus on heavenly things? Do you focus on doing what God says to do in the Bible? Say, hey, I want you to do this stuff, but you struggle with doing it. Well, many times I think if you're honest with yourself, it's connected because you're struggling with doing things that are keeping you away from those thoughts. Because you haven't mortified your members which are upon the earth. You see, if your members are mortified, if your members are put to death, you will not be, if they're not mortified or not put to death, excuse me, you will not be able to set your affection on things above. Think about that. When you're involved in the sinful things, is it easy to think about things of God? The answer is no, because you're so focused on sinful stuff that your attention is drawn away from things of God. But if you're, but if you're actually saying, no, I don't want to do that, all of a sudden it's easy to think about well, what, is, what does God want me to do? You see, you have to mortify your bodies, mortify your members, so you can focus on the things that God wants you to focus on. And so that becomes the connection here. So earlier he says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Again, verse 2, set your affection on things above. And he says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. You want to do these things? Mortify your members. You see, if you don't do that, your members will be so consumed with fleshly things on the earth, they'll be overtaken by sins in your members that you'll be setting your affection on things on the earth. When you're watching movies or television, and when, you're, when you're doing other things, you're going to places you shouldn't be going. It's putting your focus and your attention on the wrong things. I've said a number of times, the best thing to do if you want to start making right, right, right decisions in your life is turn the tap off related to bad things in your life. Get, those, get rid of those things. Mortify those things first, and then you can start focusing on things of God. Paul says here that the believer needs to mortify their members that are upon the earth, because if that is, if that is not done, sin will reign in their mortal bodies. It's the same thing Paul argues back in Romans chapter 6. But it's also important to recognize that Paul gives this command because the believer has the ability to do this. What do I mean? You see, Paul would not say mortify. He would not command. He would not give the imperative to mortify your members if this were not possible to do. This is a, a command that a believer can obey. And a believer, if you're an unbeliever, not so. They can try, but will ultimately fail. Paul gives the reason and the how in Romans chapter 8. See a lot of parallelism with Paul's argument here in Colossians versus the middle chapters of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Take a look at verse 13. He says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 13, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through your, the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body ye shall live. He's pretty clear here. Now, he's not talking about physically living. He's talking about having a profitable spiritual life. You'll be able to live how God wants you to live. You'll be able to experience things in life that God wants you to experience. But it happens by following, as it says here in verse 13, for if you live after the flesh, if you don't mortify your deeds, he says, you shall die. But if through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, Ye shall live. You see, although Paul does not mention this in Colossians, the truth is brought out elsewhere in Scripture. The truth 
that the Spirit is what provides the ability for the believer to mortify their members. Submitting to the Spirit. If the believer has the biblical desire to mortify their members, the Holy Spirit which resides within the believer will help them accomplish just that. And many people are like, I just can't do this. I just can't do this. Well, first of all, do you have a desire to do this? Do you really desire to adjust the things in your life to align them with things of God and put the things that are opposed to God away? If you truly desire this and you are saved, the Holy Spirit will work in your life, give you the power, give you the ability to actually overcome this. It's going to be a battle, but God will help you do it. If you're not saved, even if you have the desire to do this, it's not going to work because you don't have the Holy Spirit working within you. That's what Paul is getting at in Romans 8.13. The Holy Spirit, which resides within the believer, helps accomplish this very thing. But you need to have the desire to do so. You need to see God says, I need to do this. I need to mortify my members. I want to do this. God, show me how. Help me. And all of a sudden, things will start materializing. So as I bring this conclusion, I pray that each one of us here would desire to mortify our members which are upon the earth. You see, God wants each one of us, after we're saved, to do this. When God saves us, He delivers us from the penalty of sin. But when God saves us, He also delivers us from the power of sin. This means we have the ability to mortify. We have the ability to put to death those things that keep us from doing the things of God. Let us mortify our members which are upon the earth. Let's pray.